thank you for who you are and Lord, thank you that we can have our minds lifted toward you in song. What a precious gift uh, that you have given us in music. And Lord, this morning uh, we want to turn to another gift from your hand, and that is your word, as we look to it in dependence upon your spirit to speak to us this day. In Christ's name, amen. Uh, One of the downsides of college is that you don't get to read a lot of the books that you would like to read because you're so busy reading the books that you're assigned to read. Sometimes what you're assigned, what you like, happens to be the same thing, and that's that's great. Um, but after college, you'll maybe get a little bit of a breather and get to select those books that you've always wanted to read, and they're on your shelf, and people have told you about them, and you don't get to do that. Well, over the years, um, there are really only a handful of books that I read over and over again uh, outside of the Bible. Um, and I have found that in that small group of books, there's really one book that I go to over and over and over again uh, when I'm preparing for something or when something is going on in my life spiritually. Uh, it is very common for me to turn to this book because of the impact that it has had in my own life. Um, the book was written by a man that spent, has spent, he's still alive, his entire career in academics as a professor uh, at a seminary. Uh, the author of this book is considered by many people to be one of the leading theologians of our day. Uh, but it's not because of his stature as a professor or a theologian that really impacts me in the, uh, uh, with this book. It's not his lucid, engaging style of writing, though those things are true. Um, but it's really the subject matter that he chooses to write about in this book that draws me back to it time and time and time again. And in the, in, in the introduction in his book, this author says this, Our aim in studying the Godhead must be to know God himself the better. Our concern must be to enlarge our acquaintance, not simply with the doctrine of God's attributes, but with the living God whose attributes they are. How can we turn our knowledge about God, the author says, into knowledge of God? And of course, the author that I'm referring to is Dr. Packer in the book is Knowing God. And that is the passion of his soul in that, that comes out in that book. Though he has spent his entire life studying theology, his concern is that his students and the rest of us in evangelical Christianity will miss a very, very critical point. And that is that there is a distinction. In fact, all the distinction in the world between knowing about something and knowing something or knowing about a person and knowing a person. You're too young to know and remember, in fact, most, many of you probably weren't even born uh, in 1969 when the rage in the United States uh, happened to be four guys, John, Paul, George, and Ringo. Um, and that was it. It was everywhere. It was, it was ubiquitous. It was, it was pervasive. You couldn't turn without running into these four people. Um, and it was interesting in that year that there was a, uh, a series of press releases that came out uh, on these individuals. And in one occasion, I remember there was a little thing that was a media guide that was intended to lead up to this big concert in Shea Stadium in New York. And it had just about everything that you could possibly think of to ask about a person. It explained where George got his hair cut. It explained what he ate for breakfast. It explained about his clothes, the size of his clothes. It explained the preferences that, that he had as far as his leisure. Every single minutia of his 
of his life and desires and, and uh, walk were included in this little media guide. And it was interesting that a lot of people would read that stuff about George, Paul, John, and Ringo and would start talking about them as though they knew them personally. And it was not uncommon at all to go to school and to sit down among your friends and to have them bring up a conversation about George's haircut and where he would get his haircut or George's clothing and his choice of clothing or where he would like to spend his vacations. And people would just sit around and talk about that. But knowledge about George, Paul, John, and Ringo does not translated, translate into knowledge of them. We knew a lot about them. And we shared a lot about them. And we memorized a lot about them. But we didn't know them. Though we maybe pretended that we know them, knew them, we did not know them. And that is something that you and I must keep in front of us, particularly when we're in this time called college where we have a concentrated part of our life given to study about the attributes of God. Because it's not the same. The author in the book, Dr. Packer, Dr. Packer that I mentioned earlier, goes on to say that the key difference between knowing about God and knowing God is bound up in the term communion. Communion with God. And he goes on to say, communion is an activity of holy thought, consciously performed in the presence of God, under the eye of God, by the help of God. He says, communion occurs when we take truth about God into our closet and we meditate upon them and communicate them back to God. Another uh, Puritan, Thomas Manton, said this about communion with God. Communion with God is the mutual sharing of those good things which delight all those in that fellowship with God. It is a oneness of heart between man and God. Webster's Ninth New Collegian Dictionary defines communion this way. It is personal, intimate fellowship with another person. I would like to suggest to you this morning that, that the most important thing that you and I can hold before us in our lives is the fact that God has created and designed us to have communion with Him. I believe that communion or spiritual intimacy with God is the reality that we all long for. It is the purpose for which we were created, and it is the primary cause and the effect of the new birth. Listen to what one author said about that. He said, The love which a pious man bears to God and his goodness is not so much by virtue of a command that enjoins him to do so, as by a new nature instructing and prompting him to do so in love. And so he pays his devotions and he spends his time in prayer, not because of an unavoidable tribute in order to appease the divine justice or quiet our conscience, but we do so because these are the proper emanations of the divine life within us. They are the natural employments of the newborn soul. What this author is saying is that at the core of being born again is this issue of communing with God. If there is any way to explain the reality of new birth, it is with this thought that God gave us life so that we may have fellowship with him as a person, a living God. 
Augustine, many of you are familiar with this saying. It's his most famous, I believe. It says, Thou hast formed us, speaking of God, Thou hast formed us for Thyself, and our hearts are restless till they find rest in Thee. Those are profound words. Tozer, in his classic work, The Pursuit of God, says something very similar. God formed us for His pleasure and so formed us that we, as well as He, can in divine communion enjoy the sweet and mysterious mingling of kindred personalities. He meant us to see him and to live with him and to draw our life from his smile. Tozer, Augustine, Skugel, Packer, all men of God, writing on the same subject, and that is that God created us to enjoy his fellowship. Communion is personal, intimate fellowship with God. It is the purpose for which we were created physically and spiritually. It is to be the passion of our souls. And it is the, a problem when we confuse it with knowledge about God. One songwriter expressed our communion with God this way. Only to sit and to thank God. Oh, what joy it is. To think the thought and to breathe the name. Earth has no higher bliss. Father of Jesus, love's reward, what rapture will it be? Prostrate before thy throne to lie and to gaze, to gaze on thee. Does that make connection anywhere in your heart? Does that make sense? Is that something that uh, is, is reaching you where you are right now? That, that there's something familiar about the words of these men? That God created us to enjoy personal, intimate fellowship with him? David, the psalmist, understood that. Listen to his words from a, very, from a variety of psalms. O Lord, I love thy habitation of thy house and the place where thy glory dwells. Again, he says, One thing have I asked from the Lord, and it is that that I shall seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life and to behold the glory and the beauty of the Lord. Again, he says, when thou didst say to me, O Lord, seek my face, thy face, O Lord, I did seek. O God, thou art my God, and I shall seek thee earnestly. My soul thirsts for thee. My flesh yearns for thee. Thy loving kindness is better than life for me. And when I remember thee on my bed, I meditate on thee throughout the night watches. David is expressing in his words the the reality of what these men wrote about. What it is like to have personal and intimate fellowship with a loving God. And one last psalm, David, of course, says in Psalm 42, As the deer pants for the water brook, so my soul pants for thee, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before him? My tears have been my food day and night while they say to me, All day long, where is your God? But these things I remember, and I pour out my soul within me to God. David expressed his passion for fellowship with the living God. But David says one thing in this last psalm that I think is very important as well, and that is that while we were created to enjoy perfect, unending, unobstructed, Communion with God. You know and I know 
that because of sin and the revolt that has been our experience and the experience of all men because of sin, we are not able to have that perfect, uninterrupted, unobstructed communion. Even in regeneration, while we, in a way, sort of enter back into the stream that eventually will lead to the ocean, the ocean being heaven, we will never get to the place where we will have perfect, unending, unobstructed fellowship and communion with God until we reach heaven. David acknowledged that. But though that is true, the Bible is very clear that while it is imperfect, and while it is never uninterrupted, it does get interrupted because of life and our sin, and while at times it does get obstructed for a variety of reasons, right now, today, Friday, in this moment, God has provided for you and for me to enjoy His fellowship. Certainly just a taste of it, but no less real. And that defines more than anything else why you're here. Why God gave you physical and spiritual birth was for that reason. This morning I would like to, in the time that I have, in the next 25 minutes, to, to share with you four principles about communion with God. And I'd like to do that from a passage which I believe is probably the only passage in the Bible where we actually find God instructing men about how to have communion with God. And I want you to turn to that passage, Matthew chapter 6. And out of this passage where Christ is instructing his disciples on how to have fellowship with God, how to commune with God, how to communicate with God, the, the depths of the thoughts and the experiences of your life and soul, I'm going to draw out four principles or observations of communion with God. Now, even before you get to chapter 6, verse 1, back up to chapter 5, verse 48, to just give us a little bit of a context. In that verse, we read, Therefore, you are to be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Jesus, having demanded of his followers then nothing less than perfection, in this verse is fully aware of the human heart's propensity for self-deception. He is aware of our tendency to be hypocritical when it comes to our spiritual life. And so before he ever gets to an instruction on, on how to have communion with God, he stops and he addresses the issue of motive. Look at chapter 6, verse 1. He says, Beware of practicing your righteousness before men to be noticed by them. Otherwise, you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Christ confronts very powerfully the subject of motive before he gives instructions on communion. And I think it is fitting this morning, before we look into those four principles, to just pause for just a second and just to reflect for a moment on just how powerful the tendency is in our own hearts to, to look at the passage of Scripture and to look at it for the wrong motive. In James chapter 4, verse 3, James said that you ask, but you do not receive because you ask with the wrong motives that you may spend it on your lust. Um, a few years ago, uh, there was a person who worked for me that 
that was just a, a joy for me to spend time with. Um, he was a, a blessing to my life. He was a challenge to me professionally. He was a support to me. Uh, and, and because of God's working in his life, he, he resigned here and he moved on to another place uh, to continue working for the Lord there. And I really missed his fellowship. And it, on many occasions, we would try to hook up. You know how it is when you get separated from friends. You've experienced that as you've, as you've left your town, your, your high school, I'm sure. Um, it's just hard to do sometimes. Our, our paths just don't mesh real well. So I was, I was really, really thrilled when not too many months ago, I, I got a call from this guy. And it said that he would like to meet with me and, and go to lunch with me. Now, we tried to do this, and, and I kind of got to the point where I felt like it was on my side, not his. You ever been in that with a friend? And that was kind of what this was. So I, you can imagine how thrilled I was that he's pursuing me. And he didn't just call me once. I, I started getting a pileup of these phone messages, you know, that so-and-so called, wants to meet with you. So-and-so called, wants to see, take you to breakfast. So-and-so called, wants to take you to lunch. So-and-so called, just wants to talk with you. And, and it, it started happening so so frequently and within such a short period of time that the cynical person that I am sometimes, I started thinking, hmm, is there some reason that this person is so tenacious right now? I mean, they dropped out of my life and I tried to get together with them and, and it didn't happen. And all of a sudden, boom, 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 boom. i got to meet with you. It's like, hmm, I mean, why all of a sudden am I such an important person? And, and at first it felt really good. Well, then I finally made contact and, and found out what it was. There was a uh, an issue that involved money that he needed and he thought that I could help him. Well, that's what friends are for, right? I mean, you have, I mean, friends are for that. I mean, I'm, I'm glad to help my friends financially and uh, when I can and in the way that I can. But that really just, that really, really was disappointing. Because while I thought his pursuit of me and his desire to have fellowship with me was, was just to be with me. It was because of something I could give him. And before Christ gets into a very practical, simple explanation of what it is like to have communion with God in prayer, he stops and he warns his disciples, now wait a second. It's very easy to go into this with the wrong motive. Because before I instruct you on how to do it, I don't want you to pursue this instruction with a desire to get something from God. He's not some cosmic genie that you just go to and, and pretend in prayer or in, in meditation that you're communing with Him. But in reality, what you're wanting is something from Him that He possesses or has control over and that you desire. And that's what Christ does. It's kind of comforting that the disciples must have had the same problem that I had. And that you have. But having done that, he then jumps into this explanation. And let me let me read to you the entire prayer and then draw four principles. Matthew chapter six, verse nine. Pray then in this way Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. And forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory. Amen. Principle number one is found in verse 9, the first part. Our Father. 
And this is the principle. Communion with God arises out of union with God. Fellowship with God arises out of union with God. In Christ's day, it was very common for the Jews, the religious leaders among the Jews, to to pile on almost seemingly an infinite amount of, of designations when they refer to God. They would refer to him as sovereign Lord of the universe. O merciful, holy one of Israel. Those were the types of uh, designations that they would use when they would go to prayer. And as far as we know, Christ was the first person ever to refer to God as Father. In fact, as you recall in the Gospels, when he did so, he was accused of blasphemy. It was just unheard of. So you can imagine the impact that this must have had to to the broader audience that Christ was addressing here. And even possibly even to his own disciples. Because it was something that was radically different than what they understood about having communion with God. You remember in the Fiddler on the Roof when, when, uh, when what's the guy's name? Is, uh, is it Verdic? I believe it's Verdic, who's the guy from Kiev, who's the teacher, and he shows up and, and Anatevka. Remember that? Have you ever seen the Fiddler on the Roof? And when he shows up, um, he, he's got these men are gathered around and, and uh, he starts talking and they bring him in, and all these men from Anatevka are gathered together, and, and Verdict starts explaining what it is that he does. And he's a teacher. And as he explains that he's a teacher to these men, uh, Tevier says, you know how Tevier, if you've ever watched Taylor on the Roof, so Verdict, who do you teach? And he starts explaining, well, I teach adults and I teach children. And, and Verdict, looks, Verdict looks at Tevier and he says, do you have children? And, and Tevier says, five daughters. And Verdict says, five. And he goes, yes, daughters. And Verdict says, well, I teach women too. And if you remember watching that movie, when he made that statement, it silenced everyone. They were kind of chit-chatting, kind of, you know, having some fun. And then when he said, yes, and I teach women too. And they all got real quiet. And they all steal their appearance right at the teacher. And, they, and you heard these gasp. And then some guy in the background goes, he's a radical! You remember that? And then finally, the priest's son calls him over. Remember, if you remember the story, the priest's son who is there says, says to him, Zedek, you're not from here, are you? You're a stranger among us. And that must have been exactly what happened when Christ said, listen, when you want to have communion with God, begin by an acknowledgement that your communion with God arises out of the reality that God is your Father. He is your Abba Father. And because Christ is His Son, and because of the work that Christ accomplished on the cross for us, and because of our relationship to Christ, we do not come to God as some removed, impersonal force that is out there. He is our Father. We have a relationship with Him that allows us to do that. After chapel the other day when our president finished speaking, you know, he's, he's such a busy man and, he, and a lot of times he's really trying to get out of here because he's got a recording to do or he's got something going on and, and, and you guys are so great, you know, you, you won't let him do that. 
you know. So you, you come down and you huddle around him. And it's really interesting. The other day I was watching as, as he was standing there and he said to me he wanted to sneak out during the prayer, but we didn't pray and so he didn't sneak out. So he was there and he was kind of caught by the throng and, and you guys have so many great questions on your heart that you came up and you're, you're grabbing him and you're talking to him. And I'm, and I'm just enjoying it watching him trying to figure out how to, because he loves the students so much, and just how he's going to be gracious to you, but get out of here. And so he's kind of, kind of doing his John, Dr. John MacArthur thing. Yes, thank you. And somebody's asking him a question. He's given a one-word answer. And I know he's not really hearing the theological question that's going on. And you hear all these people, several of you around him going, Dr. MacArthur, President MacArthur. And he's just kind of, he's not even looking. He's just kind of got his head down and he's shaking hands. And, and Dr. MacArthur, what do you think about, you know, the fourth horseman, fourth rider in the apocalypse? And he answers it back over his shoulder. And then, and, and all these people are, all of, several of you are thronged around him and all these questions are being shot at him and, and there's this noise and buzzing going on. And then there's this little voice. This little voice that comes from way over here. I mean, he's way over here and all, these, all you guys are thronged around him. Dr. MacArthur, President, this little voice over here goes, Hey, Dad. And it was like somebody hit him with a brick in the back of his head. I mean, I don't even know how he heard the voice. Hey, Dad. Now, of course, it was Melinda. She just wanted to ask her dad for money, I think. <laughs> but it was like, it was like, boom! And he turns around, yes, honey. And it was a relationship that she has with him, obviously, that none of the rest of us have, that gives her the right and the freedom and the access and the privilege of communing with her father. And so Christ starts out his instructions by saying, pray this way, our Father. Dad, there is a relationship that we have that allows us to enjoy that. Principle number two. Principle number one, our communion with God arises out of our union with him. We have fellowship with God because of the relationship that we have and enjoying Christ. Principle number two, look at verse nine again. Our Father, and he goes on in that same sentence, who art in heaven. To hallow something is, means very simply to just set it apart, to distinguish it. It is the word that is the, the related word to our word sanctify, holy. Hallowed be thy name. It is the declaration that God's name should be set aside all by itself. And then the issue of name to the Semitic mind was a very familiar one. As you know in your, your Old Testament studies, a person's name to the Semitic mind represented all that that person was, their entire character. And the sentence reads, Hallowed be thy name, or I am setting aside all by itself the very character of God. Principle number two in our communion with God is this. Communion with God reveals our, His character to us and fills our heart with praise. Do you want to know if you're having communion with God on Friday? Do you want to know if you had it last night when you spent time in prayer and meditation before Him? Do you want to know if you're communing with God when you sit in worship at church or in chapel? Do you want to know if you're communing with God when you take your walk up on back of the hill and you watch the sunset and it's so beautiful? 
The question to ask yourself is, in those experiences, is my mind focused upon the greatness of God's person and His character? I don't sit in chapel with my little cue card ranking the speaker from 1 to 10 and in his outline or in his diction or in his hand motions or, or in his voice inflection or in his progress or his illustrations. That isn't distracting to me. I get way beyond that when I come to chapel. I'm not thinking about what i got to study or what I did study or what I should have studied, what I would like to study or that I'm not studying. I'm way beyond that in chapel. I know that I have had communion with God on, in chapel because when I leave chapel, what has filled my soul and what has occupied my mind is the very character of God. And I have seen that in the worship of the Psalms. And I have heard that through whatever the topic of the speaker happens to be. I have been able to focus upon the person of God. That's communion with God. Father, hallowed be thy name. Father, I am acknowledging the uniqueness and the exclusiveness of your character. That's communion with God. And that's the principle that Christ gives us. If we're going to commune with God, we not only do so on the basis of our as a member of his family, but we do so by focusing our hearts and our minds upon the very person of God. Not all the distractions, not all the trappings of worship, not the temperature, no light, and the sound, and the people next to me. Not even, and, this, and I want you to hear this right, not even on the text that sits in my lap. That's a vehicle that leads to the communion. Hallowed be thy name. Principle number three, look at verse 10. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Let me read to you, don't turn there, but just let me read to you a couple of verses as I try to explain to you what I believe that this verse uh, expresses in the third principle. Listen to Psalm chapter 73. Now just listen to this. Behold, these are the wicked, and always at ease they have increased in wealth. Surely in vain I have kept my heart pure and washed my hands in innocence, for I have been stricken all day long and have been chastened every morning. If I had said I will speak thus, behold, I should have betrayed the generation of thy children. But when I ponder to understand these things, why the wicked prosper and the righteous suffer, is what he is saying. When I ponder to understand this, I was troublesome in my sight. Verse 17, until I came into the sanctuary of God, and then I perceived their end. Listen to Jonah in Jonah chapter 2, verses 5 to the end. The water encompassed me to the point of death. The great gulf, the great deep gulfed, engulfed me. Excuse me. Weeds were wrapped around my head. I descended to the roots of the mountains. The earth with its bars were around me forever. But thou has brought up my life from the pit, O Lord my God. And while I was fainting away, listen to what he says, I remembered the Lord, and then my prayers came to thee into thy holy temple. 
Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Principle number three. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done. This is the principle. Communion with God not only exposes God's character to me, but my communion with God, if it is in fact communion with God, has another effect. It changes my character. Now, it's really easy to get caught up in the content of the words here and say, thy kingdom, and say, okay, what is the kingdom of God? Is it an eschatological kingdom? Is it a present kingdom? Is it a physical kingdom? Is it a spiritual kingdom? And those are great questions to identify the content of that statement. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And to think of what is the content of that statement. But more importantly, I believe, is not the content of the statement, but the desire that the statements represent. What is Christ saying to us? In communion with God, there is something marvelous that takes place. Something that's almost mysterious, really, that is taking place. And that is that God, through communion with Him, changes our very character. And when David looked about the world around him and the fact that the wicked prospered, he said, but then I went into your holy temple. And it all changed. My perspective changed. My desires changed. Jonah, as he finds himself in the belly of the great fish, experiences exactly the same thing. It didn't change. He wasn't vomited out right at that moment. David's life didn't change. The wicked didn't cease to pursue him. What changed was him and his perspective and his thoughts and his desires. And it's a great thing that happens to us when you and I experience communion with God. And what a great thing for you to ask yourself as you leave chapel and you leave church and you ask yourself, was this real worship? Well, ask yourself the question, well, do I... Do I see my perspective and my desires changing? Maybe slightly at first, but still changing nonetheless. Do I look at my trials differently? Not because they've gone away or that I'm somehow able to deny them and to push them out of my remembrance, but because I have spent time in communion with God. One last passage on this particular principle, one that you're very familiar with, the one that our president signs most frequently when he signs his name. 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18. Now listen to it in this light. But we all with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of God, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as the Lord. Principle number one, communion with God arises out of our union with God. Principle number two, communion with God results in a greater understanding of the very character of God. Principle number three, communion with God changes my character. It makes me a different person. It is the process that Paul talks about in Romans chapter 12, the transforming of the mind occurs as we commune with God. Principle number four and last. Communion with God provides an answer for all of our needs. And I don't think it's an accident at all that Jesus Christ, in His instruction to His disciples and to us, 
go through our Father, hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven, before he gets to give us this day our daily bread. Communion with God provides an answer for all of our needs. Physical needs, today's bread. What is the answer to your physical need? It's not work study. It's not an off-campus job. It's not a rich boyfriend or girlfriend. It's not an uncle. Those may be instruments in the hand of God, but your answer to your physical need, whether as Mike shared a shoulder or if it's a financial need, and as Mike expressed it, I think, very well, the answer to his physical need was what? Communion with God. But then Christ goes on to say, but it's also the answer to our spiritual need. For two reasons. We have spiritual need because of the evil that is inside us, and because of the evil that is in us, our wickedness and our fallenness and our sinfulness that still pollutes our minds and our lives, we have spiritual need. And the answer to that spiritual need, the answer to that, that tendency that I find in myself to be envious or to be selfish or to be violent or to be angry or whatever it is, the answer to that ultimately is what? Communion with God. But also we have a spiritual need because of the evil that is around us. And you know it and I know it. And the Bible speaks to it. And we need protection from it. Because it is there and it is real. The, the war is happening and the war is violent and the war is directed at you. And the goal of the warriors on behalf of Satan is to destroy everything that you have that gives glory to God. And the answer to that issue is communion with God. It's amazing, isn't it? Everything begins and continues and ends in the Christian life and glory around the subject of fellowship with God. Gang, it is so easy in a college environment to spend so much of our waking hours adding lists on almost daily, if not hourly, to our understanding about God and the facts that describe Him. And that is a part of the growing process because communion with God is impossible without propositional truth. But if you think that communion with God ends with just knowing God and knowing how to describe God, then you've missed the whole point of Christ's words in Matthew chapter 6. Because God invites you into personal, intimate fellowship. It is something we all desire. I would like to end this morning by actually ending the same way that I believe that Israel would often end when they have experienced genuine communion with God. And whether you have or haven't, I would, I would like to do that this morning. And what I'd like you to do is I'd like you to stand as we close this message. And I'd like you to put everything down. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to read to you from a, a passage 
These are the words of David as, as he has just concluded with Israel in a time of communion with the Holy God, a personal father. And I would like to do that, and then I would like to do what they did, and I would, I would like to conclude with just singing a quick chorus, if Matt would uh, start up this way. Listen to these words. So David blessed the Lord in the sight of the assembly, and he said, Blessed art thou, O Lord God of Israel, our Father forever and ever. Thine, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty. Indeed, everything that is in the heavens and the earth, thine is the dominion, O Lord, and thou dost exalt thyself as head over all creation. Both riches and honor come from thee, and thou dost rule over all, and in thy hand is power and might, and it lies in thy hand to make great and to strengthen everyone. Now, therefore, our God, we thank thee and we praise thy glorious name. But who am I and who are my people that we should be able to offer as generously as this? For all things come from thee, and thy hand we have given thee. For we are sojourners before thee, and tenants, as all our fathers were. And our days on the earth are like a shadow, and there is no hope except in thee, O Lord, our God. All of this abundance that we, that we have provided to build thee a house for thy holy name, it is actually from thy hand, and all is thine. And since I know, O oh my God, that thou triest the heart and delight, delightest in uprightness, I, in the integrity of my heart, have willingly offered all of these things. So now with joy I have seen thy people, who are present here, make offerings willingly to thee, though those very offerings came from thy hand. O oh Lord, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, our fathers preserve this forever in the intentions of their hearts so that it may direct their hearts to thee. And give to my son Solomon a perfect heart to keep thy commandments, thy testimonies, and thy statutes, to do them all and to build the temple for which I have made provision. Do you hear David? Do you hear him acknowledging the character of God? Do you hear him acknowledging his own weakness, both physically and spiritually? Do you hear him giving praise to God? David is communing with God right now. And as he closes that time, he does one last thing. And then David said to all the assembly, Now let's bless the Lord our God in song. And we're going to do that right now. Matt? last song, Awesome God. Our God is an awesome God. He reigns from heaven above with wisdom, power, and love. Our God is an awesome God. Our God is an awesome God. He reigns from heaven above with wisdom, power, and God is an awesome God. He reigns from heaven above with wisdom, power, and love. Our God is an awesome God. One more time, quiet. Our God is an awesome God. He reigns from heaven above with wisdom, power, and love. Our God is an awesome God. Amen. You're just